it was very scary. It was also like a confirmation of like something is really wrong with me and I was terrified because I didn't know what it was. When I first noticed something was wrong is when I started to speak. So I would try to say like, hello ABC or something like that. But then when it comes out, the words were slurred or it was not how I wanted it to be. And then there will be the palpitation. So I will, so like heart beating fast and confusion as to like, and fear of like what is happening because I couldn't really understand what was going on. So for a period of time after that, I actually had a bit of a panic as well because the panic feeling and the end, it, it feels the same. So I had to like really learn to identify and say, is this a panic attack or is this truly an incident, a stroke incident in that sense? Welcome to Screwed Up Moments, the podcast where it's okay to fail and it's okay to try again. I'm your host, Danny. When I was growing up, I have to admit that one of the biggest fears that I had medical-wise was to suffer a stroke. It wasn't necessarily due to the numbness or the debilitating effects per se, but more of the fact that it could happen at any time, and worst of all, the potential permanence of it all. The idea that you could be out there living your regular life one day, and in an instant find yourself immobilized and confined to a bed for the rest of your life, slowly withering away while trapped in your own body. Personally, I've witnessed my own grandfather fall victim to Parkinson's and how his condition steadily worsened over the years, transforming him from a headstrong, business-savvy individual to needing help just to go to the bathroom, and the thought of this transformation taking place overnight just terrified me. Like, how could something like this happen? What if it happened to me? How could anyone live like that? your entire life reduced to this quasi-comatose state. It kept the younger me up some nights, sent my mind racing down dark paths. In some sense, you could even say that it had quite the paralyzing effect. Okay, but bad puns in poor taste aside, the reason why I'm bringing this up is to ease our way to today's guest and her screwed up moment story. As you might have already guessed, this will be a story about stroke. But more than that, it will also be a story about the innumerable complications and consequences that it brings upon a person and how it can completely change your life. Hi, my name is Winifred and this is my screwed up moment. I'm Winifred and right now I am working as a couple therapist and relationship coach. I've been in this field for about six years now. Originally, I'm trained as a psychologist and um, because of my health circumstances, which I'll elaborate later on, I took some time to think about what is it that is truly important to me and I finally found my calling in helping individuals who are interested in pursuing the relationship of their dreams. I want to touch a little bit on your your previous background. 
So I read that you have been in the field of psychology and therapy for quite a long while now, ever since you graduated. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about what drew you to psychology in the first place? Ah, okay. I've always been interested in human behavior. And so even as a young child, I spent a lot of time thinking about why people behave in a certain way. And at some point in university, psychology really appealed to me. So I decided to study psychology, not because I wanted to become one, but I was truly interested in what motivates human behavior. Mm-hmm. So that's how I started. And um, my first job wasn't in psychology. It was my third job. And uh, when I finally get into doing clinical work at the Institute of Mental Health, I actually found that it is something that I was good at and I could really build rapport quite quickly with my patients at that point in time. So that's when the interest started to increase and I received my training. The natural progression would have been that I will continue on with my master's and then do a master's in clean site and then after that be a clinical psychologist. Mm. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about your time that you spent at the Institute of Mental Health, Mm. right? Was that experience everything that you had expected it to be in terms of like what you were looking forward to when you went into the field of psychology? Actually, not really. It was when I went to the field of psychology, it was really more theoretical. Mm. So when I started being in IMH, you see the practical, the clinical aspect of it where you really get in touch or like speak to to patients and you learn the skills of like how to conduct the interview to get them to warm up to you to trust you and all that so it Mm. was quite different and um yeah with supervision and all that i realized that i do have that tendency or the flair if you can call it to connect or to listen Mm. so i suppose that's probably with my own personality as well so it ended up being quite a good fit would you call it in a sort of intuition <laughs> mm, intuition a uh, partly intuition mm. and more like uh i would say it's more a uh, deep empathy mm. yeah that's something that i have honed over the years as well like an like an ability to read um, to understand understand emotions mm. people's feelings correct yeah things. and to anticipate and to ask the right questions so mm. you can anticipate but then if you don't write the ask if you don't ask the right question, then you may not get the answers that you want. <laughs> or to get people to believe in you or to trust you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no, I'm getting a bit nervous. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't be, don't be. You should be feeling relaxed <laughs> if I'm doing my job properly. <laughs> so that's a bit of background about our guest, Winifred the talented psychologist who curiously ended up becoming a relationship therapist, but more on that later. For now, we are going to set a bit more context by winding the clock back to 2004, where Winifred had one of her first brushes with stroke on, of all places, a date with her future husband, Stephen. In 2004, I was on my way in becoming a good psychologist I would say (laughs) by then I was probably three or four years into being a psychologist Mm. and I met Stephen that year and one of the minor episodes that I had in stroke was when I was with him it might be our second or third date we were going for a movie and then as I was walking I actually felt that my body something was not quite right with how I felt I, I 
but I couldn't really describe and I didn't know what it was mm. what it was and I actually told Stephen I said you know I'm not feeling too good and if anything happened uh, I just want you to know so that you don't get a shot if I faint <laughs> or something <laughs> like that and his response at that time was he said oh don't worry I'll just bring you to the hospital <laughs> and somehow that gave me a lot of comfort like he was he didn't panic I'm like oh my gosh you know, what's wrong with you or maybe I shouldn't see you and things like that so he was pretty calm and he just told me are you okay? If you're not okay, then I will just bring you to the hospital. <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh, wow, this guy is not bad, quite steady, you know. So I was quite comforted. And, and then after that, actually, the sensation that I had, which is a bit of like a numbness or something, it dissipated. And then we ended up watching the show and it was fine, you mm. know. But I remember feeling quite uh, secure that knowing that this person actually knows how to handle it. <laughs> so there was a lot of points to him, lah. The pair had met on an online dating website, and according to Winifred, her first impressions of Stephen was that he was jovial, cheerful, easy to be around, and most importantly, steady and reliable, a trait that was quite adequately captured from her earlier anecdote and something which he would definitely need for Winifred's later screwed-up moments. It's in April 2004, I think probably 25th, 26th. I can't remember the exact date now. Mm. So what happened was I was at home. I think I was preparing to go out of the house. Mm. And I suddenly feel that I couldn't speak. Mm. Yeah, that there was slurred speech. Or when I spoke, it was not very clear. And then I kind of knew something wasn't right with me. But that was the day when I said, okay, I think I need to go to the emergency. If you, if you can, could you describe what that felt like in that moment? Scary. It was very scary. It was also like a confirmation of like something is really wrong with me and I was terrified because I didn't know what it was. Mm. But I think at the same time, maybe because of my training, I was reasonably calm because I told my sis, I said, I think we need to go to the hospital. I am having this, like I cannot speak in things like that so mm. we took the cab and my sister is a nurse so she is quite calm in crisis moment as well thankfully so we both went to the A&E and by then my symptoms actually resolved so, so this is what we call a transient ischemic attack TIA where it actually recover you have the stroke but then you recover a mini stroke so by the time I reached A&E I was fine but then the the staff there they took it seriously and they say, okay we need to do an evaluation we're going to admit you mm. And then there was a series of tests that was done and all that. And it was confirmed that I had a, a mini stroke. It was uh, There was a stroke that happened, but then I, I was still able to do everything. It was something that has happened in the brain and they could see it in the in the scan. Mm. Yeah. So for people who, who maybe don't have uh, or don't know anyone who has been through a stroke or don't know what it's like to go through a stroke, if you can, could you... Tell us what that felt like physically. What what would start happening, and mm. how did you first notice that something was wrong? Okay, when I first noticed something was wrong is when I started to speak. So I would try to say like, "A hello, ABC" or something like that. But mm. then when it comes out, the words were slurred, mm. or it was not how I wanted it to be. The other symptom was that I couldn't lift my hand. So I was like, there was a witness in my arm actually. And then there will be the palpitation. So I will, so like heart beating fast and confusion as to like, and fear of like what is happening. Mm. 
because I couldn't really understand what was going on. So for a period of time after that, I actually had a bit of a panic as well because the panic feeling and that and it, it feels the same. So I had to like really learn to identify and say, is this a panic attack or is this truly an incident, a stroke incident in that sense? So mentally you were still present uh, mm. throughout all these incidents. Yes. It's just that when you try to say something or do something... And I couldn't. But your body just didn't respond. Correct, right? yeah. Wow. And so this was the very first one. And subsequently, I went back to work and I had another traumatic episode when I was mm. at work. And I think it was... Yeah, I also traumatised my colleagues at that time. <laughs> so I think what happened on that day was that I was just in my cubicle doing stuff and then suddenly I feel this numbness in my hand mm. and I immediately went to one of my colleagues and I just wrote down and said that I can't speak. As I think about it, I remember being really terrified and I started just crying because I couldn't do what usually came so normally to me, like, like talking and all that. And I think the incident stick in my head because I was just crying and I feel so helpless and scared and really terrified, like, is it going to be permanent and mm. all that. So the thought that always go through my head during that period of time was that, is this going to be permanent? Am I going to just be like this? Or am I not going to be able to recover and all that? This moment here that Winifred just described is probably one of the worst fears that I can think of. Going about your day as per usual when the stroke suddenly hits and you are completely powerless to do anything about it or even know how bad the effect is going to be. It's a situation that is unfortunately quite prevalent in Singapore, with stroke being the fourth leading cause of death and the top contributor of adult disability. According to Dr. Deirdre De Silva, Associate Professor at the National Neuroscience Institute, a good thing to remember is the phrase, time is brain which is why in cases where the victim has support who can identify the symptoms of stroke and help call an ambulance, timely treatment can be administered and the chances of permanent damage can be reduced. This was precisely the case for Winifred, where she was fortunate enough to not be alone during her encounters with stroke and was thus able to receive treatment in a timely manner and avoid the worst outcomes. However, for her sake... I don't think we can quite say that there were no lasting effects. Following these two incidents, right? How did it affect your sort of mindset and your your sort of life? Mm, it has such a great impact on me, Danny, because mm. I am a goal-driven and task-oriented, achievement-oriented kind of a person. Mm. And so now I, I'm not even secure about my own safety mm. and so there's a lot of adjustment that I have to make like for example I may have to like take time off and like inform my colleague that I cannot do certain things and there's tremendous guilt because I feel like oh no we are all in this but then now I'm not able to perform you know and I think that was one of the hardest things for me because I don't like to be perceived as somebody who is not performing so that was a big adjustment to me mm. to learn to receive help also yeah. You know, to, to be able to say, no, I can't do it. Can you guys help me with this kind of a thing? I did ask the question, like, why me? Why is this happening and all that? I was 28 at that time, you know, building up my career. Just met somebody who is wonderful. You know, life was like falling into place. 
And so why did this happen? Because it really just shifted my whole journey yeah. <laughs> and trajectory, you see. So I, I was confused and now that I look back, there was a lot of grief but I couldn't articulate it. There's so much loss. Loss of being the person that I imagined myself to be, you know, that capable on top of things and stuff like that. And, and that was taken away in some way. So I do feel robbed of uh, something that was precious. But at the same time, there's also a lot of lessons in it because I think if I didn't fall sick, I would continue to be a really hard person in that sense, <laughs> you know. And maybe I might not be as effective as a therapist as well, mm. you know. And I think this illness actually helped me to be more in touch with the empathy side of myself to really use it and channel it and be more understanding when people are struggling maybe in the past it was much harder for me to identify because I don't really struggle as much right mm. I want to do A I just do A mm. but now I think I, it helps me to be more compassionate more understanding and and like really allow myself to be okay when I'm not okay And so I'm grateful for that experience because I also learned to be a person of gratitude. Mm. Meaning like that's when I started to also start seeing the good things in spite of the circumstances that I was in. I actually bumped into an old friend at the corridor of the clinic one Friday after being not in touch for many years. And she ended up being, a, she is a neurologist. And so when we reconnected, she became instrumental in helping me subsequently so there are things like that that happen, which I, I have to see it as like angels in disguise that are there or God sending people to help me. So that helped me to also remember that I'm not alone in the journey. Because when you are in this state, right, like a lot of bad things that happen, it's really quite hard to see the good in it. But I think because of all these experiences and like the, the encounter that I have with people, it helped me to remember that I'm not alone you know because it's not random uh, to me it's not random it was placed in my life to show me that yeah I can do this because I'm not alone it's hard to imagine going through a stroke once in your life let alone the multiple instances that Winifred has had to deal with but perhaps because of her headstrong and determined personality she didn't let those experiences keep her down and even use them to become better at her job as a therapist however as we so often encounter in life, and particularly with screwed up moment stories, things would unfortunately get more complicated. I want to talk about when you were officially diagnosed. Mm. Right? This happened in 2007. Yes. I started to develop new symptoms as well. I had like double vision, which I didn't have previously. And so then the neurologist at that time said that, oh, you know, it's been three years since your last uh, MRI. Maybe we should, actually not MRI, it's angiogram. Angiogram is more invasive where they actually put like a radioactive in your body to mm. identify the, the blockage and all that. So it was angiogram. So I had to do a repeat angiogram that year. And it was in that second time when we did it, they noticed the progression of the illness. They noticed mm. that now both sides of the brain has blockage. Now, in case any of you listeners are not too familiar, a stroke occurs when blood supply to the brain is interrupted, thereby causing loss of brain cells and certain bodily functions. Typically, the blockages will happen on one side of the brain, which is why we hear of symptoms like one side of the face or one side of the body being paralyzed. 
And so when the doctors told Winifred that she had blockages on both sides of the brain, you can already kind of see how tricky the situation was. And to put it in technical terms, she was now officially diagnosed with what is known as Moya Moya disease. Previously, it was just one side, so they couldn't be conclusive about the diagnosis for Moya Moya. For Moya Moya, it has to be bilateral, meaning both sides of the brain will have similar progression in the illness. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about what Moya Moya disease is? Okay. Moya Moya disease is a cerebral vascular illness that is in the brain. It causes the narrowing of the blood vessel. So when the blood vessel is narrow, then the oxygen cannot get into the different parts of the brain. In other words... Moya Moya causes narrower blood vessels in the brain, which leads to less blood flow to the brain, which means greater chances of blockages, and which would inevitably lead to stroke. Sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? Winifred actually had a slightly different perspective. So the treatment for me was a brain bypass surgery whereby you need to create a different channel whereby the blood could flow. How do you feel about the diagnosis. How do I, yeah. Can you take back to... Yes. I was actually relieved. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was actually relieved that now we are clear about what it is because for three years, I feel I was leaving a time bomb and all that, you Mm. know, like don't know when it's going to explode. I think there was a shift in me immediately when it was confirmed because then now I can shift my focus into treatment and recovery. Mm. So I think that was a critical part. From then on, I started to just prepare myself. I started to read out more because before that, I didn't want to read because then it makes it real. So so my boyfriend, husband then, he was very good. He actually was the one who read out. <laughs> so he read out on my behalf and say, oh, actually it's safe. You know, they do it in children too. Because Moya Moya also affect children under six years old. Mm. So they have that, that surgery done for them as well. So he said that, you know, maybe if this is what needs to be done, let's just bite the bullet and do it right. Although we still know that there's always risk of like other complication and all that. You know, so that that gave me the courage, and I think the moment I made the decision and say we're going to go for surgery, I was just very focused on getting it done, and like looking forward to my new lease of life. Yeah. I was very optimistic. <laughs> I was pretty optimistic. Like, okay, let's just nothing bad is going to happen. That and if anything bad is going to happen, what can I do? There's nothing I can do anyway. Also, right? So you just charge forward and say, okay, let's hope for the best, lah. Mm. while preparing for whatever that could possibly happen also. <laughs> I find yeah. that so, so interesting because like, uh, I would imagine and of course I'm saying this because I don't have any perspective or experience on this, right? Sure. That, if peop- that if a doctor tells you that oh, you need to have two brain surgeries that your first immediate instinct would be like Oh my god. <laughs> you know, but, oh, yeah. but hearing from your side, it seems like for three years you were living in a sort of um, haze mm-hmm. or you were in, like, in a sort of uh, a lot of uncertainty as to what was going on with you, yes. what was happening, what was going to happen mm-hmm. until you finally got this official diagnosis. Then it's like, oh, there's something identified now. Mm-hmm. 
there's a clear treatment plan. Mm. There's a clear goal. I'm mm. going to go for it. Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, maybe I'm just wired very <laughs> goal-directed <laughs> still. Personality. <laughs> My personality. <laughs> yeah, but having said that, it was not smooth though, Danny. I mean, I mm. don't want it to be like, oh, you know, just gung-ho and do it. <laughs> it. There were many, many days when I was also terrified. And, like, mm. Because it was real. You know, you could really be paralyzed and stuff like that. And the worst case scenario would be, you know, you have the stroke, you can't talk and you cannot move. And by then, like Stephen and I, we were engaged already. So that it also affects another person in that sense. So it was a very scary thought if that were to happen too. But for me, I try to really shift my mind to the positive side. So this takes training and also intention. You know, not that I'm successful all the time, but I think that was the spirit that I brought into it and said, that, mm. okay, we're going to do this and then we're going to start our new life and get married. So the first surgery went really, really well. The process was a bit scary as well because I remember waking up from the anesthesia and I was feeling really confused mm. and I was fighting it. And that was when the first fear actually entered, I'm like, oh my gosh, am I still the same person? I don't know mm. why my immediate thought was, am I still the same person? And that was probably really important. And then after that, the the assurance from the nurses and said that, oh, the surgery is done. It was good. And now you're just going to rest. And the moment I heard that, I started to relax. And I I remember feeling really calm and happy. Mm. You know, I was like, I wish I had done this sooner. <laughs> kind of a thing. In spite of like having a tubes coming, flowing up from my head, I got a heavy head and stuff like that. What was unfortunate after that was that I had an allergy reaction to one of the medication that was given to me, which is for anti-seizure. So when mm. you do brain surgery, they will give you anti-seizure medication just to prevent anything from happening. But unfortunately, I, I had an allergy reaction to that. Mm. So I was back in the hospital and I was feeling really, really depressed because now it's worse. You know, I, I, I survived my brain surgery and then I've got this other problem, which is creating me a lot of physical discomfort. I struggled with that. And then the second surgery was two months later because after fixing the the bad side, right side, the other side that has not been operated on started to show symptoms. Mm. You know, like more frequent, more frequent like high blood pressure and then my hand was numb and all that. So the surgeon actually decided to do it like really about two months later. So it was July 18 and the next one was on 17th of September. So I went in for the second one and I was second time round for the surgery. I was more terrified because now I know the process of like, you know, how it will be, you know, while... And you had gone through some I've gone through it before right? and I've gone through complication before. Yeah. So there was a lot more anxiety. Yeah. And in the, in the second surgery, I did have complication. I actually suffered a stroke also hmm. that affected my right vision field. So when I woke up from my second surgery, I realized that I had trouble looking on my right peripheral, meaning like when I know that there are people on my on my right side, but I have to turn my head in order to see it. Hmm. But in the initial stage, you know, we don't really know what was going on. I and I I just reported and said that, you know, I can't you know I can hear the person but I can't see the person. And then I remembered waking up at the ICU on the first day of the second surgery and I wanted to communicate with them and said that I'm not feeling well and they asked me what's your name and I remember doing this I said my name is and I couldn't articulate Winifred If this were a movie and Winifred was the typical overcome all odds live happily ever after protagonist these kinds of complications probably wouldn't have happened but of course this is reality and in reality 
complications and difficulties and consequences abound. Winifred had suffered a stroke during the second surgery, which resulted in temporary loss of memory and reading and writing functions. More importantly, she had also lost her periphery vision in her right eye, creating a huge blind spot and of course, a difficult adjustment period. The transition following that was really quite hard because I realised that I couldn't even do very basic thing like making a phone call from the landline. Even like small things like that. So I was feeling quite discouraged and like, how am I going to live a normal life when I can't even do small things like this, you see? So that was constantly in my head. Like, can I get back to a normal life again, you see? So the in- initial stages, like even like when I go out, I was quite terrified because what if I lost my way or like I bump into things or like I, I, I can't, I didn't feel safe, you see? In reality, recovery is a much slower and tedious process. You adjust and you learn, you adapt and you build confidence until one day you tell yourself that you can take that next step. I had to be courageous and brave and say, okay, let's just do it. So my first time when I do a longer distance was, I remember I was travelling from Amokyo to Vivo City. <laughs> and then Vivo City got a lot of people. It was quite scary, but I forced myself to do it because with my training, I know if we avoid it, it will just get worse. So I actually forced myself to go out and to meet my meet Stephen at Vivo City at that point in time. Yeah. And then when it was successful, I'm just like, oh, phew, you know? <laughs> so it's adjustment like that. Of course, it won't always be pretty. In the car park, right? Then I opened the door and the door actually touched his car. And then he was thinking that, you know, why are you so inconsiderate? Like, you know, why are you so rude and inconsiderate that you slammed the door so hard that it hit my car door, you see? The truth of the matter is, I couldn't even see the car. And sometimes it might actually be painful. I think there was one day, maybe a year ago, when I bumped into a wall and it was so painful that I just ended up crying because it's like, oh my, I still bump into the wall because I didn't see the wall. But that was what Winifred's road to recovery looked like. She had survived the ticking time bomb and had managed to get it diffused through two surgeries. Although she came out of it less than whole, she didn't allow that to limit her new lease on life. And just half a year later, got married to Stephen in early 2008. By then, we have known each other for about coming to four years and actually we wanted to get married earlier rather than later but because of this illness and some other issues that crop up we only got married later so I had a super long engagement In many ways, her marriage was the fresh start that Winifred had been looking for freed from the constraints and the constant threat of stroke that her moya moya condition had set over her but in other ways, her marriage, just like her health wasn't always the smoothest. She would soon relocate to America with Stephen as a trailing wife, where she would again be made to go through another challenging adjustment period, albeit this time for a brand new identity. No longer was she Winifred the psychologist working at IMH, but she was now Winifred the trailing wife, double brain surgery survivor, and with no periphery vision in her right eye. However, after all that she's been through, you already know that she wasn't going to let that stop her. When we live on our own in the US, I was in a very vulnerable state. I had no friends there. I wasn't working because my visa didn't allow me to work. And then I just had my surgery. So my immediate plan was actually just to recuperate. But that isolation from everybody else, especially when life goes on, life was 
per norm for him, right? He'll go to work and then he'll be at work. And I am left alone in the house dealing with all these emotions of being in a foreign land, not having an identity like and stuff like that. I couldn't even apply for like a bank. So it's a huge, huge adjustment. So that year, we had a lot more fight and conflict and it was opposite of what I think marriage life would be. You know, I was looking forward to like spending the rest of my life with this person whom I love and all that. But then we were fighting so much and I was like, what's going on? That was when I started to focus my attention on reading up on relationships. So I'm a very, I'm a, I'm a, maybe I'm a fixer in that sense as well. Like when there's a problem, I just find information and knowledge and, and fix it in that sense, you see. And so that was how Winifred winded up on an entirely different path. With an interest born out of her own experiences, she started to read up on relationship books, attend courses and conferences, meet up with leading figures in the field, and eventually, she enrolled in the Gottman Institute to pursue formal training in relationship therapy and has been helping fix marital problems back in Singapore for the past several years. When you look back over the course of her entire journey, it's hard to believe how much Winifred has changed and how those changes actually came about. She had to endure a life-threatening disease, risky operations, partial blindness in one eye, and a complete rebuild of her life to get to where she is today. In a sense, hers is a story that has become increasingly relevant in the age of COVID-19. One where you learn how to adapt to the unexpected challenges that life throws at you and rise at the opportunity to carve out something entirely new. Of course, not everyone goes through moya disease. Not everyone can spend years in the United States developing and pursuing their interests. But I think the larger point still stands. You can choose to affect your life in meaningful and positive ways. You don't have to succumb to whatever circumstances or difficulties you face, and you can come out on the other side stronger and even better than who you were before. Again, it might be less than perfect. After all, Winifred still bumps into walls after all these years. But compared to where she was and the state that she was in during her screwed up moments, I'd say that less than perfect is a pretty good place to be in. Back then, I really feel like I was a failure also in some sense. Like, mm. you know, why it, like, I couldn't rise up to it or I, it took so long mm. that I, I think I was using the, the typical standard of success, right? You need to have a job, you need to have an income. I didn't have an income for a long time, mm. you know. And, and so it actually made me feel inferior in some sense. I mean, I probably followed the conventional way of success quite stringently because that's the only definition of success that I knew back then, you see. And I thrive in that. I was good in that. And now I, I have shifted quite significantly and I am able to say that that was a setback. Mm. But I wouldn't say that I'm a failure mm -hmm. in that way. I did the best that I could given the circumstances, using my skills, using my knowledge, using whatever that I have then to survive and to pick myself up, mm. you know, and that it was not something that I would wish on anybody, but it was, and since it has happened, I am grateful because it has helped me to have more depth as a person and like more understanding. Mm. And that I think every person can tap into their own resilience as well. That you can tap into your own resilience and tap into your own strength. So my hope is that through my sharing of my stories that you can also find that 
within yourself. I hope that the writing or the blog that I wrote, the post that I share would also direct you to a certain place where you can go for deeper reflection and all that. So I, the way I write my post is often to help the, the reader to also reflect and think about where they are at in the journey. Yeah. Okay. But unfortunately, I haven't been able to write very much these days. <laughs> I hope to get back to the future. And so with that brings the end to this episode of the Screwed Up Moments podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and much thanks to Winifred for sharing her incredible story. If you're curious to learn more about her, Winifred does have her own blog where she documents her screwed up moment story in much more detail. I'll be leaving links to that in the episode description. With that being said, the Screwed Up Moments podcast was produced and edited by me, Danny Cordy, on behalf of Fable Productions. Episode music was sourced from Blue Dot Sessions and the theme song was composed by Rico Lowe. If you enjoyed listening to the Screwed Up Moments podcast, you can help out the show by sharing it amongst your friends or by subscribing and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Otherwise, if you have any questions, suggestions, feedback, or if you have your own Screwed Up Moments story to share, you can drop us a message through the email dkoordi at fableproductions.com. Once again, this has been your host Danny for the Screwed Up Moments podcast, reminding you that it is okay to fail and it is okay to try again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>